welcome to the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast. My name is Adam Woodhall, and today I am delighted to be here with Hugh Parnell. Hello. So Hugh, he is uh, a general man about the uh, clean tech town. Um, in fact, because he is the chairman of Cambridge Clean Tech, a non-exec director of five different companies, such as one called Enval, which I think we'll be talking about later, and also has got uh, quite an interesting history of it, um, which actually he, he said he didn't want to speak too much about the history. He, he wants to talk about the present, but I'm not going to let him out of the room until he's told us a bit about his history. Um, just to get some basic practicals out of the way, um, it'd be wonderful if uh, you want to get more inspiring sustainability for you to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite uh, app platform. You can also subscribe to the Inspiring Sustainability newsletter, um, which is on inspiring-sustainability.com. And if you're feeling enthused by this uh, program, you can review it or even share it. Um, and uh, if you want to know more about me, go to that website that I uh, told you about and uh, learn about me because my day job is helping sustainable startup businesses grow rapidly. And I'm passionate about helping them develop their internal and external stories um, and so that they can so that they're telling the right things to themselves and the world in general. Now, what's really interesting is in the uh, pre-conversation I had with Hugh, um, that sounds like the sort of things that he's really passionate about. So it's going to be great to talk to him. Give you a little bit of context about how, how Hugh and I met. We actually met at something called the Clean Tech Venture Day, which was run by uh, Cambridge Clean Tech, uh, but was it held in London, and that was fairly recently. And he very ably chaired a whole day with uh, some considerable vigour and humour. <laughs> he kept us all the uh, speakers in line, and uh, but also gave some fantastic space to the sustainable startups to shine uh, during the day. Um, as I say, Hugh will be taking us on a canter through his distinguished career, uh, but particularly focusing on his uh, current passions. And one thing that he did tease me with, actually, was uh, that he's going to talk about his version of eco. But the twist is that his eco has two E's, one C and an O. <laughs> so uh, with that in mind, Hugh, uh, can, you, can we just quickly have the elevator pitch of Hugh? What's, what, what are you are all about? Well, I have travelled from the dark side to the light side and that I spent... Uh, 22 years working with the oil industry, the downstream oil industry, and some would call that the dark side. And since 2000, I have been very much more involved in the clean tech, low carbon, renewable energy space, especially the early stage company development space, similar to Adam. And I have been involved in running business angel networks or providing advice to the companies that I think are interesting in the clean tech world, especially nowadays through an organisation I founded now called Cambridge Clean Tech. Brilliant. Okay. So um, just up, up front, where can people find you online? What's Are you on LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Hugh Parnell is the straightforward thing on LinkedIn. There's only one Hugh Parnell. If you put in Cambridge, you certainly get to me. Okay, great. And just, what, how do you, just for people, how do you spell your surname? P-A-R-N-E-L-L. And that's Hugh, H-U-G-H. Thank you. Um, and Cambridge Clean Tech, obviously, they can, uh, you can also Google that, find that online as well. It's, it's a great resource. CambridgeCleanTech.org.uk. Brilliant. So we've got all the practicals out of the way. So, please, you've got to tell me, 
Tell me about this, your version of Eco, because uh, I'm sure the listeners are waiting with bated breath for that. Well, it was just an, a mnemonic I, I thought of as we were preparing for this conversation. Um, so having worked a number of years in the technology side of the businesses that are starting to provide new technologies, I'm fully aware that a lot of what we would call clean tech companies are on the innovative supply side of the story. They're about how we can do things more efficiently or more economically. So they are providing solutions to doing things that we want to do. um, And they're all about efficiency or economy. That's the first E. And I think that's much more to do with uh, supply. And we could, if they were good enough, and if that was all we needed, just go on doing everything we do as normal, just be able to do it more efficiently because of this new technology. But that leads me to the second E, which I have frequently been heard to whinge about, which is that it's not all about novel supply solutions. It's also about changing our behavior and, if you like, adopting alternative demand side consumption patterns. And that's the second E, which is what I call expectations or indeed in some cases entitlement. Uh, I think we are going to have to realize that no matter how good the technology on the supply side and how efficient and economic the future might be, if we do not change the entitlement and the expectations demand side of the story, we will eventually simply not be sustainable in the way that Adam and I might like. So the two E's are firstly the supply side efficiency and secondly the second, the demand side actually reducing our consumption, being a little bit more conscientious about our expectations and certainly in the Western world consuming less. The C, which is the second part of eco, comes from what I think is the third part that is absolutely vital if we're going to make any sort of change to the global sustainability. And that C is therefore about cooperation or collectivity or even community. It's about the fact that no one person, no one company, no one country even can do what needs to be done to allow us to become, as a global community, more sustainable. So it is a C for collective and cooperative behaviour. So you've got a better supply side, a lower demand side, and a community that works together. That gives us the first three letters of eco. And the O is, depending on whether you're a half full or a half empty, it's either opportunity, which some people think this is all a wonderful opportunity for us to correct our behavior and do things better, which I certainly agree with, or it might be O for obligation, because frankly, we've got no choice. We are going to have to sooner or later realize that in order to achieve a sustainability of the human race, let alone anything else, the planet will look after itself, but the human race won't. So there is in fact an element of obligation. So those are my EECO for eco. Great. And so let's dig down a bit into some of that. Uh, Efficiency is something that I think a lot of people would expect uh, you to be talking about, because obviously, as um, as I uh, tongue in cheek, but actually, uh, I think there's truth in it being a a general clean tech man about town. You've been involved in things since 2000, um, which are mainly on the kind of hard edge of technology. Um, And so... Uh, but tell me more about the this thing around entitlement um, that you feel might be is an issue here. Oh, I mean, I think as is as is clear 
working mostly with companies, sometimes early stage startup companies, they've often got a brilliant idea and quite often they're engineers or graduates or or um, others in the scientific world because they are those that are likely to start businesses, they have a technology and they're all mostly on, as I say, about the, the efficiency. What is lacking is that that is not in itself enough. So if you were an American, the colloquial version of it is that you can have a very efficient SUV and you still go on driving around mm. in a car that's 10 times bigger than you actually need to drive around in. So so my premise is that actually the, the technology may enable you to drive a smaller car, and that's great, but actually having the desire to do less, to consume less, to require less, to expect less is itself a vital part. And there are indeed some companies whose technology is specifically designed to help us demand and require and consume less. And they, of course, are also technology companies. But it's important that we consider the demand side and, and actually using and expecting and wanting less of the human of, of the world's resources than perhaps in the Western world we've all become accustomed to. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then talk a bit more about the collective side because today is actually we're recording this on the first day of COP twenty four. Yes. And uh, so, tell me a bit. Of, and there's there's a collect there's a the world kind of leaders, uh, or many of them, uh, probably a, a certain Mr. Trump might not turn up to the event, but certainly many uh, significant people will turn up to look at trying to how we create create a collective will around climate change. Yes. Um, so tell me a bit more about the collective side of things. Well, climate change is the obvious uh, core example of sustainability, and clearly Mr. Attenborough and various others are in Warsaw at the moment talking exactly about that. So I think there's a small risk that anything I say or that we say today is likely to appear to have been plagiarised from what's also being said in Warsaw. Uh, so suffice to say, we are not in Warsaw and haven't heard what they've got to say. But the fact of the matter is it is, it is a commonplace and indeed vitally important that we remember that no one individual company, no one individual community, no one country can address the issues, whether it's actually of climate change or the broader issue of sustainability. This is definitely a global approach. We have to have a community aspect. We have to actually do things together. Um, and I think too many countries seem to think that climate change is their problem or indeed in many cases not their problem, but actually it's everyone's problem and it has to be a collective joint cooperation. So community for me is, is simply a, a word to describe the fact that we're in it together and there is no solution that will allow us to resolve this sustainability question unless we are all in it together. And f- absolutely, I think, I think hopefully certainly many of the listeners would uh, agree with that. And then a final point actually is, the, is the, this thing around uh, opportunity and obligation and mm. something that actually came up recently is mm. um, there's a, a movement called the Extinction Rebellion yeah. um, which and interestingly uh, around a hundred academics signed a letter including the former Archbishop of Canterbury mm. around uh, supporting the mm. Extinction Rebellion mm. and one of the things that particularly struck me was that it talks about um, the kind of contract that the public have with their government and effectively that it's saying that the social contract has been broken because um, government and governments around the world have allowed um, things such as climate change to kind of like uh, go out of control um, and for me that's uh, very similar to kind of this thing around the obligation so can you tell me a bit well, more I mean, about that? These things are not unrelated I have in the past been known to say that the only real role of government is to set societal expectations. Right. Their role is to actually give as a national, in some cases international, gu- guide as to what the expectations of any one country should be. 
they, after all, are the only single entity in charge of the overall economy, and therefore they should be able to determine what is affordable and what is, in fact, achievable. Right. So the central government has a very clear role, in my view, of setting expectations. And unfortunately, lamentably, they have serially failed in probably every single way since the Second World War. So I have an enormous amount of latent enthusiasm and or empathy for Extinction uh, Rebellion, is that what it is? Extinction Rebellion. Um, I'm not, I'm afraid, of an age where I'll be getting up and wearing my yellow, yellow, yellow jumper on the barricades in either Paris or London next weekend. Uh, but I think that they are making an extraordinarily vital point. We all just sit back and apathetically let it happen. But I'm afraid that that's why I say we have to, we have to engage. And there is, a, there is an obligation as well as an opportunity. And we are going to have to do things collectively. So I think it affects everybody. And everybody should be involved somehow. Mm. Fabulous. Okay, so there's, you sound quite passionate here, and what I'd like to dig it down in there a bit is sort of what's motivating you. So obviously there was a there's a motivation in uh, the late nineties to to transfer from the dark side to uh, <laughs> shall we say the light side from uh, BP to uh, working in uh, this clean tech field, and then also there's a motivation that's kept you going for the last nearly nineteen years yeah. um, to stay in this field. Um, because I it's think not the frustration, so to interrupt, the frustration is that actually there is, there is truly such an opportunity and yet it's not being achieved. There are many early stage innovative technology companies or indeed innovative demand expression and demand change companies that are simply not breaking through. They're not becoming mainstream. If, if anybody were to ask me what is a world-famous biotech company, we could all name six or seven, or what is a world-famous in, in IT company, we could all name six or seven, but there isn't a world famous clean tech company, and yet we've had the word clean tech for over 30 years. What is it that's stopping these smaller companies from becoming bigger companies? Well, it's probably popular apathy, as it's been said before. Nobody votes to pay for uh, a but a cleaner car. Very few people these days, even now, are prepared to pay extra for a car that is more environmentally friendly or to have less bottled water and whatever it turns out to be, in whichever part of the clean tech we're talking about. People are not yet collectively prepared to pay extra for something that is sustainable. And therefore, companies are struggling to get their innovations into the market. But the reality is we probably are going to have to let them somewhere because we are otherwise going to have problems. Mm. So the frust- it's a frustration that keeps me going, that there are lots of good ideas in all sorts of fields of clean tech, not just energy, but in the sustainable economy with the waste community, or in agriculture with differing forms of, of use of water and air, or in terms of um, heating controls, etc., etc. It's not just a matter of windmills and, and solar farms. There is actually a lot of opportunity, but we haven't yet seen a global company break through into that mass mainstream because the market simply is not yet apparently ready, which is frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, it's illustrative, though, that there's one company which is connected to this, which has broken through, which is Tesla. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about Tesla, from my experience, was that they, they actually focused not on the sustainability side, they focused on the speed side, mm-hmm. uh, and they're kind of being cool and launching themselves mm-hmm. into space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, now the thing is, they, they kind of went around uh, the, the normal ways of doing things. Um, but what have you seen where you kind of things can be done done better? So what tips, if, if we've got some... Um, people, business people, uh, people, entrepreneurs working in startups. 
what sort of tips uh, could you give to help them um, think about how they could uh, grow their enterprise faster? Well, let's start with the reality that there is no shortage of innovative technologies out there. I come across numbers every month. Um, anybody who suggests that we're running out of innovation is, is simply wrong. Even in this country, we're, we're awash with new ideas. So we're not short of new opportunities, new technology propositions. The difficulty is how to convert the idea into the business. And that transition from a good idea into a good business is, in fact, indeed a, a bigger problem. It doesn't just affect the sustainability or clean tech world. It affects lots of others. But in reality, it's about scale. How do you get to scale as fast as possible? So the, the real trick for an early stage business is to um, achieve scale uh, at speed and, and arrive with strength, three S's. So if you want my abbreviations, these are three S's, scale, speed and strength. But actually early stage companies far too often either never get to scale or take very long time to get to scale or get to scale just to the point where other people have got to scale and therefore they're fighting against a, a stronger, more established company. So for an early stage startup in whatever field, sustainability or otherwise, speed, scale and strength are very important. And I think we should learn from that. And in the clean tech world, the more we can get our early stage innovative ideas to become bigger businesses at scale with speed and strength, the better it will be. And these, of course, are not easy to achieve. There's money involved, there's government regulation involved, there's competition involved, there's intellectual property involved, there's all sorts of other things that need to be achieved. But those are what we need to try and encourage. Absolutely. So um, we need to encourage those. And what I'm hearing you say is that effectively there's a market failure around clean tech, that there's a clear need uh, there's a clear opportunity, in fact, and maybe even an obligation, but it's not happening. What would you ascribe as being maybe one or two of the main big problems behind that? Okay, well, I think, I mean, let, let's just be strictly honest. As such, there is no such thing as clean tech. It's not like biotech, which is all about wet biology, or iTech, which is all about computers, IT, which is all about computers. So clean tech is an amalgam of lots of different things. But the common feature of early stage, smallest clean tech companies, whether they're in the water and waste energy, waste fields or the energy fields or, or something in between, the fact is they're all going to have to deal with bigger companies. And the failure, as I see it, is that in many cases, certainly in this country, the bigger established enterprises, whether they're the energy companies, the utilities, or indeed the consumers of other products which could be consumed more sustainably, those bigger companies are very reluctant to adopt new technologies. And so it's a brand building public demand push the big guys into taking making a change, which we need more of. The government, of course, could be playing a bigger role in this, but has, as we all know, recently sort of backpedaled with regard to policies to support the low-carbon, clean-tech economy. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, it would be a good thing if they were to take yet more interest in it again. But big companies are probably the answer to the question, how do we get smaller companies to get bigger as to actually make the bigger corporates with whom they might be engaging more aware of and interested in changing to new technologies? Mm. Okay, then. So... 
And is there anything else that you've been seeing as being a challenge around uh, the general progression of what we're lumping together as clean tech that could be sustainable enterprises? Well, there are there are two or three other things. I mean, firstly, finance money is of course the thing that take that takes any small company some money. Um, and curiously, there is no shortage of money in the world as I see it at the moment. Although not a lot of it is is prejudiced in favour of investing into the low carbon clean tech renewable space. Um, a very few companies do, but fewer than into other sexier technologies, biotech and genetics and other such things are certainly more attractive. Um, but I think it's also a case we don't have very many heroes. So if you were to look at other entrepreneurs, other businesses, other, other startup sectors, there have been in the main people who have succeeded and gone on to succeed serially and created a pattern for others to follow and so you then end up with people prepared to tread the light of an early stage business because they've seen other people do it and in the clean tech space I could be I, I could be hard pressed to find more than two or three people who could be said to have succeeded serially in the clean tech business development world. Mm, absolutely so that's a, a real challenge actually I mean going back to him actually Elon Musk uh, is could be described as one, although obviously he's not covered himself in glory in the last year or so, <laughs> bless him. Well, um, but he's got, a, he, he, he certainly has managed to grow something uh, very spectacularly. Um, well, Al Gore would be said to be a clean tech hero, mm. but he's not a businessman. Um, there are others around the world who we could point to and say, well, they have done great things in promoting and developing and sustaining a, uh, a movement towards taking this whole business of, of, of climate change or sustainability seriously, but very few of them have actually grown big businesses. And those who have become heroes, the Richard Bransons or the Alan Sugars, they are not in this field and seem not to take it very seriously. So you know, we do have a lack of um, clean tech success stories, I think, upon which others could be enthused. So this is a nice sort of connection then with um, what you're doing now. Um, so, but actually, before we go any further, just... Tell us a little bit more about what you were doing uh, in the kind of in the noughties and the early tens. Um, just thirty seconds on 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 that, and then we can lead into what you're doing now. So, in the noughties and the early tens, I did was involved in an organisation which was originally a business link organisation. They asked me to be involved. I turned their business inside out, and instead of being an advisory business for other companies on environmental matters, I said, no, no, they should be the champion for environmental innovators, and they became the champion, and that is what I have now sincerely moved into. So from EnviroLink in those days through a company that I called EnviroTech to what is now called Cambridge Cleantech, we are a club of innovators in the clean tech space, broadly defined, everything from agriculture through to windmills in the sea. But nevertheless, we are now a club which allows and provides uh, express support for smaller stage, early, smaller scale, earlier stage innovators in the clean tech space to actually grow up. And that means we are proactively helping them find their customers, meet with their big customers, meet with their partners, meet with the finance people who they might need, meet with government ministers whose policies they might need to influence, etc. So we, we actually provide not just a club with membership, we allow individuals to sing in a choir and get access to things that as a noisier bunch they're able to do than they would if they were on their own. And 
Does the business have to be based in Cambridge? No, 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 no. Cambridge was just a brand name colloquially because, of course, it is a world-famous brand and mm. uh, it is, in fact, not, not based... It is located in Cambridge, but our membership is certainly nationwide and in, in some cases international. We have companies and organisations from across the world who have become involved. And one of the things we do is to actually help UK companies go across the world and meet up with some of their customers or markets or indeed counterparts in other parts of the world. So we've been in India, we've been in China, we've been in Germany, we've been to various other parts of the world. Um, so yes, one of the things that Cambridge Cleantech enables smaller companies to do is precisely that, is to see their growth as an international prospect, which it clearly mostly is. As I've said before, if a, if a Cleantech solution works in Chelmsford, it's likely to work in Chittagong and even in China. So on that basis, every Cleantech company is by definition an international business. Brilliant. No, that's great. And so just to kind of summarise a little bit what we've been talking about is effectively you've said there's a, there's a uh, effectively a market problem in that the these businesses, the clean tech businesses for the broad term are not uh, scaling in the way they could. You're also saying that there's plenty of money out there but the problem is is that, that they there's clean tech businesses are not necessarily connecting with the money in the way that they the, the amount of money that's out there that they could do. Mm. And so and what you're saying I think is that Cambridge Clean Tech is 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 helping with that so what's just to get start off actually what's the kind of what words would you use to describe what cambridge clean tech uh, does well uh we, we we provide facilities whereby members can do things more easily in the club than they could on their own so we arrange for government policymakers to come and visit. They wouldn't necessarily come to one company in Cambridge, but they might go to 16 companies if we hold a meeting in London. Or we arrange, as we did with the, where, we, where you and I met at the Clean Tech Venture Day, we arrange a day where there were 100-odd investors in the room and 24 people on the platform posing, posing their ideas. So we put things like that together. We have meet-the-buyer events whereby, you know, if, if Addenbrooke's Hospital or if Alconbury Weald uh, Enterprise Hub wants to meet companies with whom they might liaise in order to get better lighting or better drainage or better, uh, more efficient energy buildings, then we can put on, as we have done for each of those, a meet the buyer event and they get to know 20 or 30 companies around the facility with whom they probably would otherwise have no connection and, and who individually would not be invited to go to Attenbrooks or, or Alconbury or wherever it turns out to be, but which therefore enables the small companies to meet their potentially bigger customers. So it's a very proactive proposition. It's not simply a sit back and wait for it to happen. We do put on events, but we also make other things like international trips, like inviting financiers up to meet a group of people in one place. So it's it's a, it's a support organisation, very clearly. And what, what are the kind of, for me, it sounds like a connector, a broker? Yeah, well, well, the one thing it doesn't do, and I'm I mean, obviously not to overstate it, Cambridge Cleantech is not a financial intermediation in that sense that it doesn't actually have any funds in in order to invest in other companies. We don't actively have money with which uh, we could make our own decisions, um, but we do obviously have access to those who have money. So we, we enable things to join up, whether that's companies looking for money with the people who've got the money, or it's companies looking for sales with the people who want to buy things, or whether it's overseas markets. So we are very much a broker, an intermediation, a joiner, a connector. That is that is what we do. But there are few, few and far between, not very many organisations such as Cambridge Cleantech in this, in the cleantech space. I mean, there are one or two others, but not yeah. very many. And this is why, actually, I was interested in uh, meeting you, talking about this, is because not only is Cambridge Cleantech in of itself an important 
uh, example, but it's it's what it's representing, which is that that there's this there's this gap currently between many of those great ideas and the one and actually businesses which are applying them effectively um, and then the money that they need to help them scale um, and and that's I think why. Well, it's no, it's no accident, I hope. It was an open competition and it was fairly squarely won, I'm sure, but we were party to a competition to explore the same type of activity actually based, in this case, in Oxford. And we are now, in fact, for a two-year project, running a thing called Oxford Green Tech, which is the equivalent to Cambridge Clean Tech, but simply located in a different centre of activity. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, a, it's a novelty that, came, that Oxford has not got the networking tradition that Cambridge is well known for, but we are clearly going to be bringing some of this intermediation, some of this brokering, some of this meeting and connectivity into the Oxford world. And hopefully that will also become sustainable beyond the two years that we're going to be doing it for. Brilliant, brilliant. So that's a really good understanding of uh, Cambridge Clean Tech. Uh, tell me about uh, any of the your favourite kind of current businesses that you're invested in yourself. Well, I can talk about a number, but I will specifically talk about a company called Enval, which is a spin-out from the University of Cambridge. It's spun out some time ago. It is the only company... It has the technology, the only technology in the world, which allows us to use plastic laminate packaging with impunity, by which I mean all of those Tetra Pak cartons, all of those coffee pods, all of those uh, pet food pouches, those toothpaste tubes that are themselves a laminate of plastic and aluminium, which in the normal waste cycle are simply landfilled because they cannot separate the plastic from the aluminium using the Enval technology, which is pyrolysis in a very clever way. We're able to use the plastic hydrocarbons to separate the aluminium and produce literally aluminium ingots, which get put back into the aluminium supply chain. So if anybody doesn't like using in this case, a plastic laminate packaging, uh, think again, because using Enval technology, it is entirely sensible to do so, and we are able to recover and reuse the aluminium, and in the process, we burn the hydrocarbons, in this case, the plastic, to power the generate the electricity that powers the plant. So it's a fully recyclable circular economy example of a company which I have invested in and have been a director of for some time. And how is it, what, how's their progress? Well, they are now making progress. We have not only had a technical, uh, a commercial scale plant operating in the Cambridge area for the last two and a half years, but we're also um, now at the point where the world is waking up to this idea. It's, it's an example of what we discussed earlier, big companies being reluctant to make decisions, but some of the big companies around in both the waste handling and in the plastic uh, manufacturing and, and consumer worlds are waking up to the idea that this is a superb, a superb solution. And they, they want to go on using plastic laminate packaging because it's such a good a good thing to keep food or drink or other things in. That's why they use it for the, the things that go into Tetra Packs, your milk and your fruit juices or, or the pet food or whatever. So they want to go on using the Tetra, the, the uh, plastic laminates, but we are now enabling them to also claim that they are fully recyclable, which gives them uh, uh, the little tick in the box for corporate social responsibility as well and, and certainly makes us all feel a lot happier that they are not putting very valuable aluminium into a hole in the ground. Mm. Great. And so that's a good example of how you're actually putting your money where your mouth is mm. and um, supporting through your finances, but also I imagine you sit on the board and... Yes, I mean, I'm certainly not going to claim that uh, what we have done at Enval is entirely down to me in any way. The team has been um, driven very passionately for the last several 
years by its founder and chief executive, and so I'm very proud to work with them. But it is a very interesting company, and they do have a very worldwide unique patented technology, which ultimately I would like to think will have a lot further um, penetration of the market so that other companies buy buy the kit and can similarly recover the aluminium that otherwise far too often gets put in the hole in the ground, which is obviously a very stupid thing to do. Mm, absolutely. So... We've covered a lot. Uh, I think there's been a horse racing commentator canter almost through like uh, your uh, bits of your career, especially your early uh, work. I mean, your recent work and also this passion that you have for dealing with this market failure we've got and, uh, and, and what underpins all of that, which is your version of eco. So just any kind of final thing that you'd like to leave well, we, the listener? We, we talked about one thing before we started, and I will just put this as, as a footnote. It, it does seem to me that part of the problem engaging the public at large, the mainstream, in the climate change conversation is that we simply don't have the right language. The word climate change, the words global warming, other such words, even slightly ambiguous phrase sustainability, don't really resonate with the man in the street. I'm not saying that people are not able to understand these concepts. Of course they are, but they are extremely difficult and complex scientific conversations. And the words we use do not capture the uh, imagination of the public. People far too often think we're just talking about the fact that it's the weather's got a bit wetter or it's mm. got a bit hotter. Well, of course, those are some of the symptoms, but the importance of climate change, the importance of sustainability and resources and, and the better um, looking after of the planet in, in Lovelock's phrase, Gaia, etc., etc. The importance of that is far, far more than is captured by these rather lame phrases, climate change and global warming. So I think I'd put a question into the, into the ether and just say, if somebody come up with a better way of describing what is a very complicated situation, then I think we might all actually make more progress because it is not something that is very easy to describe and it is sort of dumbed down by these phrases which I feel do not help us in promoting the concept of sustainability that you are involved in doing. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, one actually, something that we mentioned beforehand, do you think the, the concept of the circular economy, which is something that has come about relatively recently, mm-hmm. in the last 10 years yep. as a uh, mainstream, uh, it's certainly this, the concept of the circular economy uh, which is different to the linear economy, which is take, make and dispose. Circular economy is keeping it all in one. Um, do you think, how helpful do you think that is? It's absolutely vital. And I mean, there, is, there are lots of different elements to it. I mean, Enval is an example. We've talked a little bit about Enval earlier on, a company that actually is enabling companies, other companies to use a plastic laminate packaging material and yet not worry about it absorbing aluminium and being unrecoverable, it, it enables the recovery. But but actually the circular economy is also about designing things right to begin with so that we actually design at the very beginning of a product's life the process of subsequent use, the process of potentially subsequent recovery, etc. It's, it's about mechanisms whereby the entire supply chain from the people who make the raw materials through to the people who like us who end up consuming it can actually be facilitated into enabling things to be recovered and reused. And the waste industry, of course, at the very end of that, the, 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 the rubbish men, if you like, and the, the, waste, the waste tips are part of that, but they're not, the, they're not the whole part of that. Actually designing products with a mind to their being recovered and being reused or recycled is something which is extremely important. So I think this is going to become 
even more important as we go further into this question of whether we are sustainable as a, as a race or not. We can't go on using resources to the extent that we are. People talk about we've, we're living at three planets. Well, I don't know about that, but I certainly think we are certainly using more than is um, likely to be something our children and grandchildren can do. And if that's the case, then we should think very carefully about what we're doing now. Absolutely. So... With that barnstorming end of the conversation, we'll kind of close things up uh, just to finish off by saying, just to confirm, um, so if you want to find Hugh, it's H-U-G-H, H-U, yeah, G-H, P-A-R-N-E-L-L, Hugh Parnell, um, you can find him on LinkedIn, Cambridge Cleantech, uh, Google them. Um, If you want to find me, um, you can find me inspiring-sustainability.com or Adam Woodhall um, on LinkedIn or Twitter. And then, um, obviously, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then I'd be delighted if you could uh, put a little review or a comment on it. Uh, You can get in touch with me to let me know how it's gone. Um, And then... I uh, hope I've offended some people, in which case you can write in and complain. (laughs) Yes, that would be great. Uh, Any feedback is good feedback, as they say. Um, and then finally, if you're a sustainable startup or you know of one and you would like to, to grow faster, then either get in touch with Cambridge Cleantech or you could even get in touch with me and I can provide some advice on how you tell your stories better. Um, so for today, signing off from the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.